is Yvette Brown from Awkwardness and Grace. I'm a white mom raising two black boys, and if you feel squeamish talking about race, you're not alone. Join me, parents, and professionals as we have conversations about race and the awkwardness and grace of it all. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Awkwardness and Grace. Today, I'm interviewing Asha McDowell. She's an African-American mother with two African-American children and an African-American husband (laughs) filled with joy. (laughs) Welcome to Awkwardness and Grace. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Asha, my first question for you is, what keeps you awake at night? I guess with being a mother, raising productive children and ensuring that I'm not wrecking havoc on their lives, I'm doing it right. You know, there's no handbook to parenthood. We learn as we go. We do the best we can. We pray that we're making the best choices for them. And that's what keeps me up at night. Just praying and hoping that I'm making the right decisions and choices to put them on a path to a happy life sounds like what every parent wants right yeah that definitely keeps me awake at night too am I making the right decision even with two children that are so completely different right when we talked previously who you had mentioned you started a nonprofit. can you tell me a little bit about that I started a nonprofit called palette of expressions when I first graduated high school, I remember, um, and I was going for my BA. One of my first things was I wanted to start an after-school program. And so on this track, I was Boys and Girls Club, you know, after school, YMCA, counselors. I ended up getting my teaching credential and taught for seven years out in Oakland. What I realized when I was in Oakland was that I wanted to have a bigger impact than I was having. As a special ed teacher, you are in the classroom for probably more than one year with the same group of students. They need consistency and for their learning. Mm -hmm. So I would have the same group of students for two to three years. Mm -hmm. And the parents would come to me, oh my gosh, I wish they could stay another year. And it would break my heart that they couldn't because they didn't always have another teacher that they were going to that gave them what they need. And that's what the parents would express when they would move on at times. Because sometimes they would have to go to different schools. Special needs, it's where you go to where they can serve your needs. And that's always not at your home school. Or... So with that, I decided to go into the realm of after-school programming. And since I've been in the after-school realm... I finally took my took the opportunity to start my nonprofit, Palette of Expressions. And it's a youth development nonprofit to help students engage in curriculum through art integration. I did a lot of that within my classroom because I currently work with Napa County Office of Education. I'm a program coordinator uh, and I help oversee three elementary school sites. I develop curriculum, I train uh, site supervisors and the staff, and I also train throughout uh, Alameda County, Contra Costa County. 
Wow. And so, yeah. That's pretty amazing. Okay, is there anything you don't do? <laughs> so, I have a lot of influence on the site supervisors and the staff that are impacting these students, as well as the students themselves and what they're learning and how they are learning, how they are accessing material. And while I do have a lot of that influence in Napa, I wanted to bring a lot of that back to the Bay Area where I have a lot of experience and a lot of people that look like me are in those areas. I grew up in San Francisco. I went to school and taught in Oakland and I live in Richmond. So I really want to give back to kids and students that look like me. That's why I started Palette of Expressions. We just had a spring break program this past school year and we had a wonderful time and they made some art pieces that will be exhibiting in the Oye Art Festival coming up on August 3rd. We partnered with Joyce Gordon Art Gallery, which is a longstanding African-American art gallery within Oakland. Oh, that's fantastic. You're bringing your love of your community. Yes. With your with your students and putting it together with an art gallery, that just uh, that's uh, I love that community bond, that link, yes. and that connection. Yes, and I really appreciate working with Joyce Gordon. And when I say African American art gallery, it's not just for African Americans, but it is a space that allows African American and people of color who don't usually get opportunities to show in bigger galleries a space to do that. She has been quite integral in the African-American community and doing that. And this is just another piece of it with our youth and doing that as well. What a great way to celebrate. You've talked about what your motivation was to try to start Palette of Expression. On a personal level within your family, Mm -hmm. what were some of the challenges that you have had with your children concerning race? Well, my son is 11. He started school when I was working in Oakland. And he went to a school that was predominantly African-American. Then I was transitioning. I had moved to Vallejo. And so I transitioned both of my kids. My son was in second grade at this time. And I had started working in Napa. So before I entered my children in school in Vallejo... I mean, in Napa, because I was working there, I entered them into Vallejo with their homeschool. And I just didn't know about Napa. I wasn't from Napa. So I didn't just want to throw them in there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So the first year I put them in Vallejo and they were in a very diverse school. You have African-Americans, you have Latinos, you have white, you have Filipino, you know, just the whole gamut is in their class. So after that year, and I was in Napa, and I got comfortable with Napa, so I transferred my son over to start third grade in Napa. At first, a couple of months, he was so excited, excited to be at school with mom, but it turned into a nightmare for him. Um, One, the school is predominantly Latino, and he was maybe one of three Um, African-American kids at the school. Coming from Oakland, where it's predominantly African-American school, going to Vallejo, very diverse population. 
it was culture shock for him. By the end of the year, he was tapped out. He was frustrated. He was um, acting out and just not happy. Kept saying, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. So I eventually ended up having to pull him and put him back in Vallejo. They really consider that home and appreciate the diversity there. So that's been a little challenging for me and eye-opening too, as far as how children see differences and how it impacts them, social emotional well-being, how that affects learning. Because you can't have, you won't have learning if social emotional is not in check. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, if you're not happy, you're not going to absorb anything. Right. Because you're so focused on just taking care of that part of yourself right, that he's taken right. care of. Right. So that was difficult. And then once he's he's good in Valera right now, he has been diagnosed with ADHD. So he has a different way of learning. He's very active. <laughs> so is my son. Right. Oh, my goodness. A kinesthetic learner. And some of the other issues that I find in education specifically is the misuse or overdiagnosis of ADHD in African-American boys. Our school system has been designed from, I don't know how many years, hundreds of years, right? And it hasn't really changed much within that time. And... In our culture, the African-American culture, and I'm not talking in any absolutes. Everyone's different. Everyone's an individual. But overall, our culture is very musical and um, art-driven. I find that within these classrooms, not even just African-Americans, but a lot of students have a hard time engaging due to the constraints of sit-still, have your hands crossed, listen to lectures for a big portion of the day. And so that's another reason, another drive for this palette of expression and our integration. And we know that in education, that's one of the first things to get cut when money is an issue in schools that don't really have money. The public school sector where a lot of students who are on the lower side of the socioeconomic area <laughs> is. And then a lot of those are African-American. Not in total, but a lot of those are African-American. Yeah. So the overdiagnosis of ADHD, you have found that it tends to be higher among African-Americans. Oh, definitely. Boys, girls? Boys, generally. It's generally boys. Um, Because even in my classroom, when I was a special needs classroom, filled with African-American boys. When I think of ADHD, I think of it as a very broad term. Yes. And I think of boys, and I just immediately, the word active comes to my brain. They need to touch everything. They need to experiment with everything. What does this happen when I drop this or do this or hit that? They're so, um, they're like little scientists. Yes, definitely. I feel that sometimes when you say they're overdiagnosed, that we're just not even listening to them as little people and tapping into what they need to learn properly. Right. Like you said, sitting down, crossing your, you know, crisscross applesauce. Right. Don't move on the rug. 
I don't know many adults that could right. do that. <laughs> Definitely. Through your teaching, how did you go about connecting with them? Well, and that's another <laughs> big issue as well. Like when I came on to teaching, I came on as a Oakland teaching fellow. The Oakland teaching fellow is sort of like the, um, you're to teach for America. It's like cohort groups like that. You know, they get a lot of backlash because it's people who come on maybe from the business sector or there's a deficit in teachers, right? So they're pulling them for whoever is interested in changing careers. You could come on, be a teacher, we'll train you and try to put them sort of on the fast track for that. Why they get a lot of backlash is because they bring in individuals into communities that they have no idea about. Culturally, then there's no connection there. Like to these students, I can be considered auntie. You know what I mean? (laughs) I understand them. You know, I grew up with kids that are like them. I understand what their moms are saying. I understand what their dads are saying, their grandparents, all of those type of things. So it's almost, you know, I can give the look. (laughs) And they understand that look. While some of my other counterparts who would come on, they have no idea. They're overwhelmed. You know, they usually don't last. In the schools that are serving predominantly African-American or kids of color, They're not being equipped with teachers that can give them what they need as far as compassion, even a mindset to understand, to understand them, where they're coming from, why they might respond in a certain way. So do you feel that is a cultural advantage if you're African-American teacher teaching African-American kids, or do you feel that? It's simply because of the way you look? I don't think it's the way you look. The way you look does give off a message. The way you carry yourself, how you, like I have locks. So that's a certain message there that people, you know, conceive in their minds um, when they see someone with locks, especially African-American. Even like a white person, if they have locks, they might conceive them as hippie or, you know what I mean? So not always that way. I think it's more of a cultural thing because I can also say a Caucasian person or a white person that grew up in the culture can also have a sort of similar connection. And they can identify sometimes with some of the issues that they have to deal with. Not all, but, but they can empathize a little more. So do you think this can be taught to teachers? It could be taught to a certain extent. It could be taught. I think we still need a lot more people of color (laughs) in the realm of education, but training is definitely needed. Teachers who are coming on need to really be prepared. It's almost like even like with the police, you know, and and this whole debate with their training and It's like you need to be analyzed, you know, (laughs) and really dig a little deeper on why they're doing what they're, why they want to do, why they want to come into these classrooms. Because when the heart is there, I think it makes it a little easier. Yes. 
when you use the parallel concerning the police department yeah. and training, I feel like if they just put on their boots and walk the streets and talk to the community right. instead of driving in their car and dividing themselves, right. that they would have just a little bit more connection, more understanding, more empathy. Right. And be able to analyze maybe a situation much deeper than simply just arriving and right. reacting. Whereas, you know what? As a white teacher walking into a classroom for a, full of African-American kids, if they don't have a connection to the community, I could really right. see them just not getting right. certain things. Right. So this is, a, this is almost like a cultural um, learning experience. Yeah, definitely. And, and training for, for teachers. Yes, definitely. Okay, so I think you have another project. Yeah. <laughs> Let me train these teachers <laughs> how to deal with our kids. <laughs> yeah, urban settings, you know, they can, they can be a challenge, but they can be rewarding as well, just like any other setting. You know, it comes with its challenges, but it can be rewarding as well. It's like be cautious of going into there to be a savior. Understand that most of these families, they're coming from love. They're coming from a foundation. They have, they have the ability to succeed without you, but you can, through their journey, and through your journey with them, drop little nuggets to help along that road. Yeah. And I, I feel like sometimes that is an issue as well. Oh, someone had wrote a message that said, oh, I'm so, I'm trying not to, like, make sure I'm not saying any names or <laughs> putting don't, it in don't, that. Don't say putting names, it but. Where they would can... know, yeah. But um, just, like, congratulating a team of people for saving these disadvantaged this disadvantaged community and it just rubbed me <laughs> such the wrong way well that's a perfect example that of them not understanding their the community right right exactly like this community doesn't need saving right right exactly like you exactly. said foundation of love communication mm-hmm. parents that truly want their kids to be the best they could be right, right. there's that is a perfect example of a white mentality. Right. I mean, I can understand that. I think at some point, I'm sure I felt that way too. But I don't anymore. I had to kind of, I had to like immerse myself mm. and realize, who do I think I am to save these people? They don't need saved. Right. They just need to be treated like people. Right. And connect. They have the ability to to learn on their own. And, of course. you know, in some capacity, you're helping though. You're helping to support their mm-hmm. growth, mm-hmm. Um, but they will be okay. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that, and I mean, we know everybody doesn't make it, but overall, I think the thought process should be, I'm here to support where I can, but I know you have it inside of you. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Yeah. I'm curious, as an African-American mother, and father, how do you talk to your children about race? We talk to them about it all the time. I'm an activist. <laughs> my mom is an artist. My dad, you know, I come from a family in a community where uh, 
it's talked about. They've been on marches with me, um, created signs and protests. We were deeply involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. I put on events that they have been a part of. They understand it to the best of what they can understand as a 9 and 11-year-old. And are continually asking questions. My daughter, she's like somewhat of a, a woman historian. She always likes to read books on women and, and African-American history, which is so interesting, and nonfiction books about those topics. So it's a never-ending conversation. And my husband continually talks to my son about the same things and how he carries himself. I know a conversation that we tend to have within our communities, and I know I've had it with my children, is we instill in them that you have to be 10 times better than your counterparts to get the same results. So you can't afford the same mistakes that they make. You can't put yourselves in the same positions that they may do. You have to be 10 times better. And that's instilled at a young age in most of our household. I didn't realize that until my eldest son was eight. Mm -hmm. And then I started realizing, oh, you cannot spray paint your Nerf guns to look like real guns. No, I don't care if your white friends are doing it. You're not doing it. It's hard and heartbreaking to make them understand that that can save their lives. I understand those conversations unfortunately, that we have to even have them. Oh, definitely. You know, we talk about even being out, even having conversations, you know, if the police is there, we have conversations about police interactions, (laughs) you know, and I'm not sure if that's happening in other and white households at this age. You don't say anything. You ask for us. You ask for us. You ask to speak to your parents and that's it and giving them, especially my son. And what's interesting too is, I don't know, do you have a son and a daughter? Two boys. Two two boys. We speak to our son differently than my daughter as well. There's a different experience for the African-American male than it is for the African-American woman. Even his father has to have different conversations with him. And it was even me learning, because I grew up, a lot of my family were women. I had like one male cousin. <laughs> so, I mean, that I was like around, you know? So I grew up around a lot of women. For my husband, even realizing his experiences, that will probably end up being my son's experiences. He gets stopped by the police way more than me. And drive the same car, you know? <laughs> the same where I know he was taking my kids to school one day, and I'm usually the one that takes them to school. And I drive this same route every morning. And this is one day, and it was Daddy Donut Day at the school. So he took off, because he's always working, and he took off. He's like, okay, I'm going to go. And they ended up pulling him over for speeding. Yeah, he's like, there was three cars in front of me, you know, and I'm, and I'm going to tell the truth. I usually speed <laughs> in that carpool lane, you know, but I've never, I drive this route every day, just about for the last like five years, never been stopped. Same time. I've seen this cop over there before. It's just so interesting. And then identifying that 
these are the battles that my son is going to be up against as well. So it's pretty eye-opening. But so he has to, as the male, navigate him through that and that I don't have that same experience. That's something I didn't realize. I have had female friends been pulled over driving. This is like the vice president of Fox. (laughs) Female. Driving home from work one day to pick up her son and driving her Mercedes and gets pulled over and the cop thinks that she stole the car. Mm. This woman is highly successful simply because of the color of her skin. Right. So it does happen to women. Oh, no. I've been pulled <laughs> over before. But I'm, what, what I've realized is it happens like three times more, <laughs> you know, than me in the same position. Mm-hmm. Curious. What is the relationship with the police department in Richmond? Do you know, is there a relationship that the police department has with the community in Richmond? I'm actually not sure. I'm not in Richmond a whole bunch. So, I mean, I live here, but I work in Napa. (laughs) My kids go to school in Vallejo. I go to church in Oakland. I do a lot of community work in Oakland. So I'm not really sure. I do know... In most of our neighborhoods, there is a lack of trust. Just for my own experiences, I've never seen like a cop just walking around our neighborhood or saying hi or anything like that. If we see them on the corner, then it's like, what are they? What what are they looking for? You know, there's always that idea of something. They must be looking for somebody or something. It's not like, oh, hi. Yeah. Knowing no. who they are and no. connecting with them. No. How about in your neighborhood? Are you guys familiar with the police that I, are around there? I took my kids to the police department, made sure they know who they are, hmm. got a tour of the police station so the sergeant knows who they are. The mm. captain was in transition when I took. I think I need to do another one. Mm. We live in a really white safe neighborhood yeah didn't know that when we moved from los angeles my kids run around everywhere and i'm just getting concerned now that they'll walk their friends home at night they're younger kids it's like we all they all go in a group and then my older son is walking home for about a block by himself and i keep thinking i need to get him back to the police department Mm. so that the police know who he is Now, if I had a white kid, I would never think Think about about that. that. It's almost, it's just stunning for me to think that I have, that anyone has to take those kind of precautions. Right. You said you were raised by a lot of women. Mm Mm-hmm. Did your mother talk to you about race? Yeah. As far as, like, we always did empowering African-American conversations So it wasn't really, it was never like warnings like we do now with ours somewhat. It was more celebrating like Kwanzaa and things of, things of that nature where we talk about, you know, learning the, the African-American, uh, when we sing, you know, at the ballpark. Not the title. Anthem. But... The anthem. American yeah. anthem? Is yeah. that what it is? Yeah, so there's an African-American mm-hmm. anthem. Right. <laughs> and I know because I sing yeah. it to my kids and I cannot remember the title of it. Yeah. Okay, so I'll have to put this in the show notes. Yes. 
So, you know, I grew up, we grew up singing those songs and uh, having black history programs and all those things. So it, it was definitely talked about. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So when I think about the conversations that your mother had with you, they were empowering you to lift you up mm-hmm. because there's probably a lot of messages out there in the world that you were getting right. that seemed really negative. And then now you're having to pass that information on down to your kids. Do you feel it's more necessary to have these conversations about race with your kids? No, I think it's always necessary. I think it's a, it's a foundation of who you are, mm-hmm. no matter where you're from. I remember having a project in high school. The teacher asked us to write about where we came from. The instructions were, if you were African-American, you need to pick a country from Africa. And so my grandmother is, she was born in Panama and she immigrated over here, migrated over here. And I chose to write about Panama because that's where I know my grandmother's from, right? And so when I get my paper back, I had a C because I didn't follow directions. And the directions reiterated if you're African American, you need to pick a country from Africa. And I never I didn't understand it then and I was angry, like, what do you mean? My grandmother's from Panama, you know, my great grandfather and my great grandmother was from Barbados and Montserrat, little I you know, so I'm like, What do you mean? Not until I got older that I realized we all came from Africa. And the thing is, we don't know. We lost that history of where we were. And that's what she was trying to connect to us, but we didn't get it. (laughs) And saying all that to say, I forgot the question. (laughs) But, oh, if you feel you need to talk to your children more about race now than your mother did with you. So in making those, connecting those dots, I think it's important to realize the history of everything and how everything is connected. They came from some country in Africa. Not sure where I haven't done my DNA, you know. And then through the transatlantic <laughs> slave trade, broke off to Barbados and Montserrat, which then happened to Panama, which then happened to America. And so learning those connections, I think, is real important in understanding how we identify as a culture, why we do certain things we do, even like braids, hairstyles, dancing, art, all of these type of things are products from Africa that we have brought with us and has been mixed with our African-American experience. So I, I do. I think it's real important we talk about race and we talk about culture and we talk about where we come from so we understand where we are. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even, I mean, even why the system is set up the way it is, why we are in the positions that we are in. It, you have to go back to understand that. You know, when my, when, when my son or daughter are asking me, well, why don't they like us? Why is it a problem? Why are African-Americans least likely to own a home? Why are we at the bottom of the totem pole in socioeconomic status? 
You want to know why? Because it started here, <laughs> you know, with and all of these and systems have been set up that keep a lot of us in a certain bracket, and it's hard to break into those other brackets. And when I'm talking about brackets, not even just middle class, but if you think about the higher, you know, <laughs> if you really want to go there, the main there is the billionaires, the political that own all the oil industry, you know what I mean? And then have, have a say-so on the laws and everything else. These systems that are constructed are why we are in this position. And so how do we tackle that? How do we deal with it? How do we learn to navigate within this system? Or how do we change the system? which now we have, what, four congresswomen that are causing an uproar. <laughs> you know, because change, change. Painful sometimes. Yeah, it is. And it's not going to be shaken up. It, I mean, it's, it's going to take a lot. Something has to be shook up in order for change to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I sent something to your mom about Alicia Garza from sure. Black, Black Lives Matter. She's starting something called Black Futures Lab. Oh, okay. And she did a census. She's doing a series of census mm-hmm. throughout the country of people of African or Black descent. Okay. And asking them, what do they want? What do they need? What do they want to see changing? Yeah. I think she's done one. Now she's doing another one. But she's really, she wants to make some changes because through these census taking... She gets information. She knows how to um, create policy right. that can affect change that will support the African American community. Mm-hmm. So something to look into. Yeah, no, I'll, definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link. All right, cool. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Okay, so what gives you hope? What gives me hope? The future generations give me hope. The people on the front lines. I mean. We all have a piece to do, and everybody's important in this change. Whether you're on the front lines, you're behind the scenes, you know, from the census to the policymakers to the protesters to the people who print the flyers, you know, it's all, and to the teachers who just educate about it, to the journalists (laughs) who get the message out there. These are the people that give me hope. These are the things that give me hope. We're not staying stagnant. I'm okay with chaos to make a change. Like even in this climate right now, where we have the president who drives a rhetoric, <laughs> that a hate-filled rhetoric was needed so that people can see what is happening. You know, that's like taking the Band-Aid off of the sore to identify is there an infection still and what is needed. I'm hopeful that the people that would like to see change will come together and keep putting one foot in front of the other and do as much as they can in their lifetime to spread love. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you enough for this beautiful interview. Thank you. I hope I did well. (laughs) Beautiful. Wonderful. You did great. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And good luck on your journey. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. 
so many thoughts came up for me after my interview with Asha. Like, what is American culture? We talk about black culture, but what is white culture? We are Americans, but why is black culture so different than white culture? So different that Asha's experiences with white teachers coming into predominantly black classrooms are failing because they can't relate to the African-American students. That's pretty sad. It is also another example of white privilege and proof that a system of education that was built over 100 years ago is not serving everyone equally or equitably. Asha and I nervously chuckled at the idea of a cultural training program for white teachers. But if that is what is needed, then maybe this can be a new direction for respecting and connecting with students of different cultures. When diplomats go to other countries, they are trained in social and cultural protocol of the country they are visiting so that the interactions are smooth and void of social faux pas. As Americans, we expect others to come to our country and assimilate, to blend in and act as we do. But if we expect people of color and immigrants to be like us, we will lose some incredible knowledge of other cultural experiences, from food, music, dance, language, to parenting and business. Americans in general have a superior attitude and think that we don't need to learn from other countries. But that superiority robs us of precious resources that we can't put a dollar sign on. By engaging with students and honoring their cultural norms, the teacher can learn about the nuances of the students' ways of working and in the end make a more productive and meaningful experience for the teacher and the student. If the teacher does extend themselves to learn about students' culture, then the diminishment of racism becomes closer to a reality. It is much harder to be racist when you know someone and understand someone. I didn't dig deeper with Asha concerning the large number of black boys in her special education classes. What I should have asked is, is the school predominantly black? And what is the racial breakdown for ADHD in other schools? In the school my child attends, there is now only 1% African American, unfortunately. In the special ed classes, it is racially mixed with white, Asian, Latino, and black. I am not sure what the ADHD breakdown is, but I can hedge my bets that it reflects the mix of the class. Personally, I feel ADHD has become a broad, sweeping term and not fully understood. If someone saw my younger son, they would say he's pretty energetic and kinetic maybe even a candidate for ADHD. But for him, life is one big experiment, and that can mean making bubbling volcanoes or lifting a bookcase to see how heavy it is only to find that all the books and stuff on it fall off and crash. Is he African-American? Yes. Is he ADHD? No. When I asked Asha about how she talks with her kids about race, she mentioned that, her conversations with her son are different than with her daughter because African-American men have different experiences with racism than African-American women. 
especially when it comes to stereotypes of what a quote-unquote criminal looks like. Her husband is the one who has the talk with their son. This made me reflect on my conversation with Dr. Nicole Wolf. She said the current policing, judicial, and criminal justice system plucks one out of three African-American men from their community. Asha talks with her daughter about race and racism. But if her husband was not in the picture, then his son would be robbed of a father who could tell his son about experiences and to guide him. This is happening to one-third of the African-American male population. It is like removing a leg from a three-legged chair. It is crippling and debilitating. Asha inspired me to think deeper about the historical connection between Africa and being an African-American. There is an obvious connection, but what was missing for me was how intrinsic the threads of history weave through Africa, across the Atlantic to America, and directly anchor the African-American identity. Asha's high school teacher wanted her students to dig deep to find their roots and the spirit of their African heritage. Like all historical contexts, it's easy to forget where we came from. Personally, I don't feel connected to my German, Puerto Rican, or Italian roots. I am the blended American that identifies as an American, even though I question what American is. Asha's kids asked her, why don't they like us? Which is a gut-wrenching question. The answer always seems to circle back to a historical context of African American history. I struggle with this question and the why are they racist question. I find myself pulling pieces from history to flesh out an answer. But the harsh realities can be overwhelming for a child to comprehend. If a child seven or under asks, why don't they like us? Or why are they racist? One can parallel it to, let's say, a kid at school wants your toy and forcefully grabs it from you. The kid who took the toy wants to make you afraid by being mean so he or she can have the toy for themselves. If you feel afraid, you're more willing to give up your toy so you won't get hurt. At this point, you can explore with your child what it feels like to be in that situation. The racist is similar to the kid who takes the toy because she or he makes you feel afraid by treating you badly because of your race. When you feel afraid, the racist can take what they want from you because you don't want to get hurt. Again, how would the person with different colored skin or looks feel? This may seem overly simplistic, but it is a start and can allow the child to ask deeper questions like, what is race? Or they may lead into talking about their own friends of color. I find it's very important to use the words race and racist because a person can be mean to anyone, but a racist is specifically targeting someone because of their race. This is an opportunity to see what your kids are thinking and to educate them on skin color, race, and history. I can't say I have all the answers, so I seek out resources like reading them books about slavery, racism, black heroes, and white anti-racist heroes. I'll put a list of books in the show notes for you. 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you have the courage to talk about something uncomfortable like racism with your children and to explore the answers to their questions. Let's connect again in a couple of weeks. 